so that the filibustering begin. I rise today to begin to filibuster. I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together for frankly as long as I can because I know that we can come together on this issue. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records or to, to make a spectacle. We're engaged in a filibuster, a way to divert attention from what we're doing today, to obstruct, and that's what's going on today. Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the lead faculty for Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. My old squash partner, James Fennessy, is here to join me in talking to Dr. Jason Larson, an instructor in philosophy and religion at the Hotchkiss School, and an adjunct instructor for SNHU. Today we will discuss Jason's academic and professional background, and we will discuss what life is like teaching at a private boarding school. So, what is your name and what do you do? Sure. So, um, my name is Jason Larson, and I am a teacher at a secondary school, a prep college secondary school in Connecticut, and uh, come to my location there via a, kind of a long and complicated historical journey to various colleges in the Northeast before finally settling here in Connecticut. Uh, my area of specialty is actually in religion, religious studies, and in the ancient Mediterranean world. Those are the two areas where I've had my training, uh, both my master's degree in history and my PhD in religious studies from Syracuse University. So Jason, could you tell us a little bit about um, your background, so where you studied and also how you became interested in these topics? You have the religious studies background, um, there's the connection to philosophy as well and history, so you really do get an opportunity to dive into a number of different disciplines, so it would be great to hear how you connect these experiences and all of your training. Sure, sure. I know I uh, became interested in history when I was in high school. I had a wonderful uh, world history teacher who really kind of cultivated our interest in that. He was excellent and really instrumental in my interest both in the ancient world and also in American history. So when I went to college, I was declared to be a history major pretty much from the get-go, and uh, I ended up supplementing that with a major in biblical studies and uh, really focused, concentrated on ancient history with some American history mixed in as well. So I think from really... My early education in, in higher ed, anyways, it was from the beginning a mixture of the ancient world with American studies and with religious studies, and these kind of things all converge into my career where it has led now at this point. After I graduated from Gordon College, I went to Miami University in Ohio, studied ancient history, Mediterranean studies there for a few years, got my master's degree, and became interested in archaeology, and uh, from there. The plan was to earn my Ph.D. from Miami University, but that didn't work out for a variety of reasons, and so I took a little bit of a detour and went into library field, uh, earned my MLS from the University of Kentucky, and worked as a librarian, a special collections librarian, kind of a local historian for the region, and also taught uh, Western Civ on the side uh, for the school at Northern Kentucky University, 
And I did that for a number of years, uh, and then finally got the opportunity to move back to the East Coast and to Massachusetts, where I, I became a special collections librarian in Framingham, Massachusetts, at uh, what is now Framingham State University, before becoming the hospital archivist in Boston at Children's Hospital. I did that for a number of years as well. But I never lost my interest in, in, in pursuing the higher degree of, of a doctoral degree in either history or religious studies. And so at, after my children were born, I decided that I would pursue that, that dream and try to go back to it. So I ended up enrolling in a Ph.D. program at Syracuse University and kind of brought together all of my old interests in the ancient world and classical Mediterranean history with religious studies, with my concentration in uh, early Christianity, as well as in Judaism and early Islam, uh, and also with the American side of things and how these religions uh, interact you know, with the American historical life, so to speak. So that's, that's kind of where it went in terms of my education. Ultimately, I did not end up receiving a tenure-track position in the academy. It wasn't for lack of trying. I, I uh, was ABD for a number of years and had a lot of different adjunct experiences teaching at a variety of schools. My most recent was at Bates College and Plymouth State University in New Hampshire, uh, where I was there for a temporary uh, replacement for a tenure professor who was on sabbatical. And that was a great experience for me. But I also knew right from the beginning that I needed to be actively looking for work because it was just a temporary hire. Uh, and that led me to where I am now. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, the place, the school that I'm at now is a wonderful place where I'm able to indulge in all of my academic interests and my teaching interests, as well as have opportunity to travel and lead student trips overseas. So this has been really, it's kind of been a long and winding path, um, lots of different pieces of, of this. It wasn't a linear direction by, by any means. Yeah, that's interesting. We've talked to uh, one or two secondary school teachers uh, over the course of this uh, podcast, but it's always interesting to hear from that perspective because it's very different from academic. And so just to start off with, what special you know, credentialing or training did you need to get into that field? What led you there? What did you have to do to prepare for it? And then we can talk about kind of what you do on a, what, what it's like to, te to teach on a daily basis there. Well, that was, uh, that's another good story, actually. I was at Bates and uh, looking for opportunities to continue teaching someplace else because I knew I wasn't coming back. And I had no original intentions to go into teaching at secondary school level. I, my own high school experience was, you know, well, I would say it was probably typical of a lot of kids. It uh, wasn't exactly fond memories all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Same here. And so my, a colleague of mine and my brothers encouraged me to think about it because I had no other really options. And so I hooked up with a kind of job placement agency that specializes in finding teachers for private high schools. I knew I wasn't going to be able to teach in a public high school simply because I didn't have any certifications or anything to that effect. All I had was an advanced PhD degree. Let's see, having, having the opportunity to teach in a school like this, having a degree, the PhD, was actually a big help. Now it seems like everybody coming into the school has got a PhD. It's, it's trending that direction as there are more and more PhD candidates who are either don't want or can't get a secondary, excuse me, a um, tenure-track position in the university someplace. There's naturally a fallback to these kind of opportunities. Um, and that's what happened to me. I applied with the headhunting head agency, and they approved my application, and so they basically did all the work. I, I did not find my school. They, uh, they found me by using this agency for their own hires. And as I didn't have any other opportunities, it all went down really quick, and I got a phone call for an interview. 
uh, asking if I could interview that same day by phone, and it came completely out of the blue. So I did that. It went well. A week later, I was on campus for an on-site visit, and then a week after that, they offered me the job. So it went, all in the span of about three weeks, I went from having no prospects to having a full-time position. And it was really quite, you know, I should say quite unexpected. It wasn't something that I was seeking out actively, but it just kind of fell into my lap. So I would say that, you know, for me, just taking the flyer on the agency that specializes with this was really, in some ways, kind of providential. And that's fantastic that you're able to find and use that resource because not everybody who has that level of experience would really think about making that step into uh, into high school teaching. You know, the aspiration for most people with a PhD is probably community college or higher, <laughs> usually higher. Yeah. So, so the fact that you, you were flexible and teaching seems to be the core of what you love to do. So the opportunity to do that regardless of what the environment, it's just great that you were able to actually identify that and then and then make that happen. Yes, yes. It was a, quite a bit of degree of uh, leaning into the uncomfortable, so to speak. Um, after years of teaching college-age students and, and tr non-traditional students who are older than I am, I was to step into 14-year-old, 15-year-old teaching a humanities, philosophy, and religion uh, was uh, it was very intimidating at first. But it, I quickly overcame that. You know, one of the things that I I really realized I really liked doing was just the teaching, as you say. I didn't like all the other baggage that came with it from when I was serving on committees and, you know, being pressured to write and things like that. As adjuncts, I didn't have a whole lot of that, but I knew there was some. And now in this environment, I've replaced pressure to publish with coaching kids in different sports and, you know, helping them adjust to being good citizens of the world in dormitories and things like that, as well as my, my core teaching experience. And it's been great because I've been able to customize my old electives that I had previously taught at Bates and, and Plymouth State and other places at Syracuse and so on. Customize those to less, uh, well, well, I won't say less mature, although they are that, but it's, it's more to a younger audience of 17, 18-year-olds instead of 22, 23-year-olds. And it's been great. And I imagine that divergence must be even more apparent when you're teaching at SNHU, where you basically have a, all adult learners. I mean, the average age of our students are in their 30s. And so you've got, on the one hand, you've got, yeah, teenagers in your day job and then, you know, 30, 40, 50-year-olds or whatever in your, uh, your part-time job. That must be kind of an interesting dynamic to maintain. It is. Um, and it's a constant reminder to me, too, that what I do now teaching at the secondary level is going to shape the way these kids approach education going forward. And that's something that, that's something that I, I carry as a dynamic both with my, my full-time teaching work here and my occasional teaching at, at SNHU is a reminder that the student that's on the other end of this discussion board may not have had the kind of op opportunities to learn in the ways that I've done it. And so I, I feel like I feel like what this does is it allows me to kind of keep all of my teaching skills fairly sharp and for to meet different constituencies, whatever they might be. Everybody learns differently, and that's one thing that's really apparent. Yeah, I bet. And so you mentioned that there's a little bit different, since you're working for a, a private school versus a public school, you mentioned that the public school, of course, required credentials and all of that. Do you, have you noticed, or I mean, since you haven't taught public schools, maybe you haven't, but is is there a difference when you're teaching private versus public? Are you, do you have, feel like you have more leeway in what you're able to talk about with your class? Do, or do you have more control of your curriculum or do you think it's pretty much the same or vice versa? Um, yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of difference. I have 
pretty much the flexibility to teach more or less any elective that I am qualified to teach through my experience. So um, I don't have to stick with a particular curriculum. If I want to teach, say, a course in religious issues in American life, which is one of the, my staples here, each year I teach it, I can take a different approach. Um, I can focus on, say, local history and local religion. I could focus on politics and religion. I can talk about race and religion and all these other topics. Whereas, uh, and the fact that I can te talk, teach about religion at all is probably a big difference between the private school sector and the public school sector, where we can actually spend an entire semester doing an elective course on the Bible and its reception in America or something to that effect. Whereas such a course would be difficult to get you know, different parts of the country especially, difficult to get past the school board. So there's a lot of a lot of leeway there. I can pretty much customize those things. Now that said, I do have a fixed humanities curriculum for philosophy and religion that we do update every year, but we're not necessarily beholden to anybody to for that, except for we want to make sure that it's a rigorous experience and the college office and the college boards are looking at our curriculum, making sure that the students are uh, taking classes that will definitely prepare them in such a way uh, to be successful at whatever college they go on to. So while there's some oversight from the Dean of Academic Life and also from the, uh, our college advisors who advise our students about where their best college choices are, the, we do have, as a department, the freedom to kind of craft that curriculum any way we want. That's fantastic. To, have that, to be able to have that freedom, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to find this company that hired, that got you that job. <laughs> I tell you, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, you know, outside of just the teaching part, I, I have no desire to turn back. Let's put it that way. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what life is like. I mean, you've you've touched on it a little bit there, but you know, you mentioned that you coach and you mentioned that you lead field trips or trips abroad, even. Uh, so, how does what, what's that stuff look like? How how does that you know, what, how often do you do that? I guess just, let's just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, so let, let me just walk you through a typical day, I guess, in terms, in terms of how the teaching goes in our history okay. department. And, um, so I usually teach anywhere between two or three, sometimes four sections per day. And the class day is typically from 8.30 until 3.30 in the afternoon. So I might teach my philosophy and religion section to a whole bunch of ninth graders uh, in the morning and then early afternoon I will teach a, a group of 10th graders in similar subject and then later in the day I might teach my uh, one of my elective classes say on the Abrahamic religions to 11th and 12th graders and then after that day is over I have office hours where I meet with my advisees I meet with students who need to talk to me and go over papers and things like that um, and then uh, for two seasons out of the three in a year I do some coaching I coach uh, personally, I coach a club squash team, which is more of a recreational, here's how to hit a ball off the wall kind of thing, and who have no intentions, kids who have no intentions of playing competitively, but they like to hit the ball off the wall. Um, and I just, I supervise teaching the basics of the game and make sure nobody gets hurt. It's pretty low impact, and I like playing with the kids as well when they let me. And then later in the day, after sports day is over, those of us who are residential faculty like myself, we have uh, responsibilities in the dormitory. So I'll come back to my apartment and I'm available for kids that need to talk, who need help, or just to supervise the general behavior in the dorm. Uh, we organize some activities for the kids. We get them together after check-in to do some sort of social event. 
Um, occasionally, we have to have a meeting about. Otherwise, it's it's an aspect of the job that I actually did not think I was going to like, that has turned into probably one of the most enjoyable aspects of it. Uh, the constant interaction is good. We're, te we're actually teaching these kids more about life, I think, this way than we do just have kind of a standard uh, standard day school or brick and mortar classroom where we see them, we teach them, and we go home. But by interacting with them, we can teach them sportsmanship, we can teach them citizenship, we can teach them you know, personal relations, in some cases even personal hygiene, in, in the dormitory especially. So these are the different aspects of the day. And while it's not for everybody, I realize that. I didn't even know if it was going to be for me. I think that once you start kind of getting into the field of things and realizing how much of an impact you can have on these students, it's really very rewarding. So that's the, the kind of typical day. My school has a really active global studies program, and we're constantly, we have a lot of, a lot of different opportunities for students to travel and to uh, learn overseas, and also not just overseas, but elsewhere in the United States. And in the last few years, we've initiated a program for where I would take a bunch of students who are interested to Israel to participate in some archaeological work and to uh, learn about the politics, culture, and religion in the country. It's just been a fascinating thing. We had our maiden voyage, as it were, a couple of years ago, and we're slated to go every other year. And this is the next run. So in June of this year, I'll be leading, uh, hopefully anyways, I'll get enough kids to sign up, leading another program there where we'll dig for two weeks, and then we'll spend basically a week and a half traveling all over the country and kind of getting acclimated to it and learning, especially what I want the kids to get out of this, is how how states and how groups and communities and religions and other types of social groups use history and use archaeology and material history in order to support a, an ideology or to support an agenda or to make claims upon land or to make claims over other people. In other words, to teach them that historical study is not necessarily neutral. In fact, I don't think it is. I think that is the way of, of which uh, students need to understand that for, for many places in the world, history can be used as a tool in order to promote an agenda, in order to promote an ideology, to make claims uh, on various things. And there's no better place, I think, to study that than in Israel. So that's how that project came up. And now students can do this and get a sense for it and, and participate in this, this program that we have developed with me with a couple of colleagues in the department. It's been a wonderful thing. Really glad we're doing this interview because that is not at all what my high school experience was like. And so it's nice to know there's other options out there. And it's also really nice from a career perspective to know that that type of career is out there because I, I can guarantee that very few of the, you know, the PhDs that graduated with me who were all scrambling for adjunct positions, none of us knew, really even knew about that, that kind of option. So this is, this is amazing to hear. Yeah, definitely not. I think the opportunities that we had at our high school I think it was joining Future Farmers of America. I don't think uh, <laughs> these other these other awesome things existed at that point in time in that specific high school. <laughs> right. Yeah. For me, I had I came from a very small high school. It's a good chance that some of my fellow classmates from class of '91 will hear this at some point. And, and while you know I wasn't socially the most active guy, and I didn't get involved with things, even when we did have opportunities, certainly did not have anything like what we're doing here at my school. Going forward, it sounds like you're really enjoying this, so I'm guessing you're gonna you're probably gonna stick with it. I imagine. I do. I have really no intentions of, of leaving this school, and certainly not uh, not this way of teaching. It's been very 
very, very rewarding for me. It fits my family life. It fits my schedule life. And it's just I can engage in all kinds of things. And at this particular place, I'm pretty much fulfilling all of my professional and academic interests and desires. I can pretty much do any of these things. Um, I'm digging. I am traveling. I'm engaging in biblical study. I'm engaging in the politics of history. And, of course, I'm teaching classes that I really love to teach. Yeah, that's amazing. And it just goes to show that just because you get a PhD or some higher degree in history that your future doesn't necessarily have to be academia. I mean, if you're if you're really resourceful or there are specific elements of teaching and education that you really like, it doesn't necessarily have to be within a college or university system. That's right. Um, and I think that this kind of this field in teaching um, is catching on because I've involved in a number of different searches for new hires over the years and pretty much every everybody that applies now most of them are ABD some people already had the degree in hand so the, this is the time I guess you could say the time to strike you know if you're in graduate school looking for a job and you're despairing of what you see in, your, in the community college or the higher ed market generally it would be great to if you're interested and you don't mind the possibility of, of being around high school students who are somewhat less mature this is this is certainly worth having a look and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of schools, many more than I ever thought were out there. Now, do you think that we are to the point now where you would have to have a PhD to get it, get into one of these positions? Or is it still possible for people with MAs or prob probably not BAs, I imagine, but at least MAs, or is it still possible for those folks to get in? Absolutely. Uh, I think that is still possible, for, definitely still possible for MAs to get in. And it's possible even for student uh, prospective uh, teachers with BAs to get in. Uh, we have several new teachers here in our school who are coming straight from college and are participating in what is known as uh, the Penn Fellows Program. Um, and this is a program where students are learn remotely. They you know, participate in classes and do projects remotely like we do at SNHU uh, with a couple of meetings on site during the year. Um, they, and they are placed in our schools. Uh, we have, I have several colleagues now who are fresh out of, we're more or less fresh out of college, who are active teachers, they're coaching, they're in the dorm, they're teaching a half-time load, and going on for their master's in, master of science in teaching. They're, it's a great source of promoting what it is that we do, and it's a great way to find out if this is the career that people actually want, because it's only a two-year commitment. We also have students who showed exceptional promise coming out of school, they may have traveled a little bit, and, uh, students, sorry, um, faculty who came to, came to us without having earned an advanced degree, but were really, really passionate and were comfortable with this world and are teaching here and now without having gone through the fellowship program, which is, you know, so there are lots of ways in into this. And it's not necessarily even the case where you have to be, you know, God's greatest gift to teaching. You might be an excellent coach, and that could be an avenue, but you'd like to teach. Uh, you would like to give it a try. This, many of these schools will give you that opportunity as well. So there's a lot of entrance points. There's a lot of entrance points, and teaching is certainly uh, probably the biggest, but certainly not the only way to, to approach this. If you have a master's degree, I think you do have competitive advantage, as well as if you have a PhD, I think you have a competitive advantage, but it's not required, at least not yet. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Now suddenly rethinking all of my life choices. I do wish I had discovered this years ago, Yeah. You know, yeah. much earlier than I did. Okay, well that sounds really cool. Before we move on to the recommendations, do you are there any other lingering thoughts that you have that we haven't talked about yet that might be interesting to folks? Well, one thing that comes to mind is that for those 
who uh, would be interested in trying to break into this area of teaching, it, if you have a desire to write and publish and get lots of articles out and be active scholar uh, in a more kind of traditional higher ed way, it's very difficult actually to kind of do that in this world. We're constantly busy, you know, we're always engaged with students and the time to actually sit down and do some serious historical research is often very fleeting. I have really not been able to do, I had dreams of writing articles and writing a book or two, you know, even while I took this job and uh, that's just not happening. You know, I might get some blog posts out every now and then or uh, short little pieces that I use with my students for teaching, but other than that, I think the the, <laughs> the publishing door is not, while it certainly isn't shut, it's, it's not exactly wide open anymore, simply because we have so many competing commitments in this kind of world. So if that's, if that's what you want to do with your history degree, then a day school is probably a better option than a, a full-time boarding school like where I'm at. Yeah, that makes sense. It's probably a lot like people that work full-time at community colleges where they have to teach like, you know, six sections a, a semester or something where your your job is teaching and there's not a whole lot of time and energy left over for research. That makes sense. Right, you know, that right. Be your nights and weekends. Yeah. Unless yeah. you have a family. <laughs> Which I do, yes, exactly. <laughs> so does the, uh, this is kind of tangential, I suppose, but does your family live with you on campus? Yes. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm just gazing wistfully off into space, thinking, "My anyway." Uh, okay, well, great. Rob's going to be asking you for the uh, the link to that placement company afterward. Yeah. Well, yes, was... no problem. I can provide you with anything you need. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how long I last after fantasy bolts. Um, all right. Well, all that sounds really cool. Well, let's move on to our uh, recommendations here. Uh, so, Jason, what can, what do you have to recommend to us today? Well, one thing that I think for historians anyways, and students of history who are interested in the field, I think the best thing that someone can do to really become engaged outside of, you know, outside of the Internet and outside of, of sitting in a chair reading books and articles is to get out and travel. Get out and see history in the field, as it were. History should involve a lot of field work, in my opinion. And one of the things that got me interested in this, in history generally, and in philosophy and in religion, too, was to actually be in places and see things that you have studied. For me, the opportunity to get overseas and to go to Israel, go to Italy, to Rome, and to Sorrento, and to Jerusalem, and other places, to actually see, for example, some of the things that I teach in my classroom and online was, was really just kind of, almost, almost kind of like a spiritual experience. And I think it's, that it's really valuable for anybody who's interested in historical subjects to go out and explore. You can start with your, your local neighborhood. In my neighborhood here, uh, we have historical markers all over the place from the early iron industry from the 19th century that hardly anybody knows about. And we have power plants along a river that are just really just remains or ski jumps in the middle of the woods. And you say, where did this come from? What used to happen here? Um, and it can really stoke interest. It can stoke one to pursue things deeper and to make these things actually seem like real life instead of just abstractions that happened, you know, 50 years ago or 2,500 years ago. To participate in archaeological digs is a very enriching experience, especially when you, you actually find some things. You know, you can dig up a house that is only 100 years old, or you can dig up uh, a house that is 3,500 years old. Um, it's all kind of a piece. And the material aspect of history, the material aspect of, of even religious life is something that I think more people would benefit from. And so my, my recommendation is just get out in the field and see what's out there at the material level. And uh, James, what do you have for us today? 
Um, actually, we'll just let that comment speak for itself. I couldn't agree more. Travel is one of the things that I love most, and just being able to go around and see places that you've studied or or read about is pretty amazing. I mean, one of the one of my favorite places is Helsingor, outside of um, Copenhagen, which is a historical castle, but also the inspiration for Hamlet. So, I mean, just seeing the the physical locations can sometimes really inspire you to continue to learn. So, you know, it's not an article or a book um, recommendation, but uh, I would like to build on, on that point about travel. And actually, my recommendation is actually kind of along those same lines. Uh, have you, either of you ever visited the website Atlas Obscura? Yes. No. Okay. Well, then Jason knows a bit about it. But this website is – it's a website dedicated to telling the story of really odd places around the world. It's meant to kind of stimulate, you know, travel, and you can go check these places out. And give, they give they have little brief travelogue-type articles on these obscure places around the world that are, that are usually pretty quirky. And they're places that you would never expect to, that, to actually exist. Sometimes these are these can be like natural like rock formations or whatever, but sometimes they're also man-made. And so uh, last year, just before Christmas, I think it was, they put together a, a hardcover book where they assembled a lot of these descriptions. And I, I picked up the book a while back, but I just kind of pulled it off the shelf a few days ago and was just amused by the stuff I saw. And so there's this hardcover book that's it's basically kind of, it's, it's basically set up like an atlas. It's ge- it's by geographical area and all that. But it's got entries on things like in Croatia, there's a museum of broken relationships. And in Bavaria, in the middle of a cathedral, there's a, the devil's footprint <laughs> in the in the middle of the cathedral. Um, and so it just kind of it gives you like, you know, the latitude and longitude numbers. You can go to search these places out. It gives a brief little dis- description of what it is, tells you where it is. So you can go to find these things and everything, you know, closer to home in Ohio. There's the American Sign Museum in Cincinnati, which <laughs> nobody would ever think of going to see. But they really, they've, got a, they've got an entire page on it. Uh, so anyway, it's got a lot of cool stuff in it. And so I think this if you're looking for places to go. Something like this can certainly help you. So the website Atlas Obscura and the uh, they have a hardcover book where they has assembled a lot of those uh, articles from the website. They also just came out with a uh, children's book version of the Atlas Obscura um, hardcover book, but I have not actually seen that yet. But I'm thinking that might be Christmas present for Junior. Great suggestion. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, so with that, thank you, Jason, for joining us today. Sure. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. This has been fantastic. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy and Jason Larson, I am Rob Denning. Bye-bye.